Welcome to the Ecology Everywhere podcast, where early career ecologists get to discuss anything remotely related to their research or their life as graduate students. An unfiltered, short-form discussion to get to know who hides behind the next groundbreaking ecological research and to tell us a bit more about a subject we naively thought we mastered. Today our guest is Eve Courtois, a master's student from Université de Sherbrooke, who will tell us a bit more about tree swallows and ecological traps. Yeah, so um, my name is Eve Courtois. I'm a master's student at Université de Sherbrooke, and I study tree swallows. Um, so tree swallows are little passerine birds, migratory passerine birds. Um, they feed on flying insects, so they're aerial insectivores. And as almost every other aerial insectivores, they are declining um their populations are declining. So lots of research is put into understanding the causes of those declines. The What's particular with tree swallows is that they use tree cavities to nest, um, but they can't excavate their own holes. So they have to use cavities that have been uh, excavated by another species, and those are pretty rare. So people have... Um, thought that maybe the loss of nesting site is cause of the decline. So people are putting nest boxes out there so that tree swallows have a place to breed in and that they don't decline. Except the thing is that they put nest boxes in almost any environment. And my research is to ask the question, well, is it a good idea to put nest boxes in very disturbed landscapes such as farmlands? So That's why I study tree swallows. So I ask the questions, how do they choose their nest boxes? And are they able to discriminate between a good environment and a bad environment to breed in? That's mostly it. Awesome. Thank you very much. Um, so, of course, since we're both at the University of Sherbrooke, I've heard uh, your pitch a few times. And there's a few <laughs> questions I was always wondering about. But um, regarding these excavating holes, uh, first question was, what uh, creates these holes? Uh, what type of animals will create these holes in trees for the tree swallows to nest in? Yeah, it's mostly um, like woodpeckers. Um, I know that uh, tree swallows like the cavities excavated by northern flickers most. Um, why? Maybe it's because of the shape, um, the location on trees, but it's mostly woodpeckers and other bird species that excavate their holes. And once they don't use them anymore, well, tree swallows can use them. And in terms of, um, let's say, like better environment for them, like would be would be a perfect environment for tree swallows because now I think they have less habitat than they used to have in the past. Um, so would you say their best habitats are in forests or like less open lands or in prairies? Yeah, that's a good question, actually, because if you... Like, if you look in any textbook, you'll read that tree swallows are associated with wetlands. So, like, the classic tree swallow environment would be like a beaver pond, like a wetland that has, like, trees around it a little bit, but a lot of open space to forage upon, a lot of insects, and lots of, like, old trees with cavities in them. But these environments are less and less common, you know, uh, especially in south of Quebec, like all the wetlands have been, not all, but most of the wetlands have been drained to do agricultural fields. So nowadays, like swallows are, um, are using almost any open habitats over that, that have like cavities near them. So if you put nest boxes in an agricultural field, let's say, um, corn row crop 
like swallows are going to come there. It's not their natural environment, but they're going to come just because they are used to using any cavity that's, uh, that's available because they are rare in nature. So the question of what what is a high quality habitat, it's a very complicated question because it depends on what you compare. Um, my research was a little bit in that scope. It was to ask the question, well, how do they choose their nest, their nest boxes and do they choose the ones in highest of highest quality? I unfortunately didn't contrast um, landscapes uh, of varying types. Uh, I contrasted all farmlands of different um, agricultural management. So contrasted farmlands that were row crops, soybeans, maize uh, mostly, and others that were more extensive ones that were um, meadows, pastures, and uh, grasslands. So what we find in our system is that grasslands are higher quality because there is less, well, we think it's because there is less pesticides, probably more insects uh, at the very important part of the season where they have to, well, where swallows have to feed their nestlings. So, and maybe grasslands and, uh, and pasture are just closer to what, um, to like the beaver pond natural environment that swallows uh, evolved in. That brings up a sort of an interesting question. It's, you know, you're, if you're looking at these localized environments and, and how the preferences are changing across those, have you seen any kind of effect from the sort of the surrounding patchwork of landscapes, like uh, maybe like uh, adjacent forests or uh, anything like this? Like, is there a role that uh, adjacent areas are playing in this these localized preferences as well, or is it more just a straight localized kind of thing? Yeah, actually, uh, I found a, a strong effect of landscape. It's interesting because, well, you talk about forests, and I told you that, like, the natural environment of swallows are beaver ponds. But beaver ponds are in forests. You know, it's a local open land, patch of open landscape in a forest. What I find is that tree swallows are attracted to open landscape at large. So they will select, preferentially, a huge corn field rather than like a forest with a small patch of open landscape. So openness of the area seems to be a major component of preference for nest boxes. Now, if you just consider, if you consider just open habitats that are equally open, so equally like there are no trees, they will prefer extensive cultures. So pastures and meadows and grasslands. What I think my hypothesis about that is that they just green up earlier in the spring because they don't have to be so they offer they offer a permanent cover um whereas like maize has to be sowed every year and in the spring in april it's just a field of mud so that might not be attractive for swallows so i find that open landscape is important um when you have an open landscape they're going to prefer extensive cultures but what's very interesting is that I didn't find an effect of water at all on preference. So I told you the tree swallows are associated with water, and that's true. I mean, just today I went to walk uh, in Sherbrooke next to the lake that's in the middle of the town, and there were, there were tons of swallows there just because they forage over water. But in agricultural landscape, it seems like water are not 
important because there's just there's not enough. It's not uh, it, like it's not a feature that they can select because there's no water. So it it turns out that probably that the preferences are very different depending on what type of environment you're in. So I guess this kind of brings up the the ecological trap idea. Um, wondering what you know. What do you think is tying into these preferences? Would this be like maybe like mostly maybe like insect abundance or is there, you know, some other cue that you would expect is, is the reason for these preferences or uh, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, it's a good question. Actually, in my research, I decided that it was important to identify all of the main cues that swallows use to assess habitat quality in order to determine if you have an ecological trap and what, what's causing it. So the idea of the ecological trap is the one that, like, animals use cues to assess a, a quality of the habitat, but if the habitat changes so much, um, maybe the cues are not good indicator of quality anymore and animals don't detect it, so that brings them to use habitats that are of bad quality. So I thought that the cue thing is the central idea in the ecological trap. So it's important to assess which cues are used by individuals. So in my project, I, uh, I uh, looked at lots of different cues, landscape-related ones, food availability, and others about the presence of a competing species and others about the presence and the breeding success of the same species. I've actually found that lots of these cues influence preference. So if I can like summarize what's the best environment, the, the most preferred nest box in my system is a nest box where there's lots of open space, um, lots of extensive cultures, where food availability was very high in spring, where there was a lot of a competing species. In my case, it's house sparrow. House sparrows are abundant in our system. And when there's lots of house pair, it seems like these farms are preferred over the other ones. Um, the presence of the same species too is, uh, is important. So it seems like swallows prefer to breed in aggregation. They breed where other swallows are abundant. And they prefer preferentially breed in nest boxes that had high success in the previous year. So lots of cues are used, um, but are they related to breeding success? So that's that's the other part of the question if you want to insert the ecological trap question. So one one thing that I noticed that could point towards an ecological trap is the fact that they're attracted to farms that have high density of house sparrow. So they like to prefer they like to breed where there are lots of house sparrows, but you have to know the house sparrows are very aggressive birds. Um, they were introduced here uh, like more than a hundred years ago and they compete for nest sites and they are, they usually win against swallows actually. They can kill swallows, they can peck their eggs, they can uh, make them fly away and abandon their clutch. So in the end, it's not a good choice for swallows to bring near house sparrows. It's, that's one mechanism that could lead to a trap in my system. Another mechanism that leads to like a non-ideal behavior in my system is the fact that they cue on the food availability 
that this this number of insects uh, present in spring, but that number is not really associated with with, with what's going to be present during the food uh, the the feeding period, the period that the swallows have nestlings to feed. So the they use the amount of food in spring, but that's actually not related to their breeding success. So maybe in a more natural landscape, it would be, but in farmlands, you have pesticides, you have lots of things that's gonna change the, um, the availability of food. So it's actually not a good cue of habitat quality. So those are two examples of mechanism that I found could pot potentially lead to an ecological trap in our system. Yeah, it's very interesting, it's especially just like thinking of these, like you're saying, artificial inputs into into landscapes and uh, and how that can throw off the the natural population dynamics of the uh, the insects. Um, uh, Charlie, do you have a question or? Um, yeah, I was a bit curious about uh, the whole situation where the tree swallows, um, how how they get to copy almost the choices of a different species, despite the fact that this species is a competitor, um, the the house power I'm talking about here, and I was wondering how big of a competitor house power was in terms of uh, food present. Like, are house sparrows also consuming lots of insects as well? Or because I know they're very opportunistic animals uh, and can eat lots of things de depending on their environment. So do you know if house sparrows yeah. are also competitors in terms of food? Yeah, it's a good question, actually, because they, they're not a big competitor for food. They're, they mostly eat seeds in, uh, in farmland. So so you're right in saying that in some way it's like swallows copy their habitat choice. That's actually the name of one of the hypotheses why why uh, why birds would try and breed near another species. It's the habitat copying hypothesis. Um, like I said, house Peru were introduced in North America, so it's not a species that um, swallows evolved near the probably evolved with species that may um, have more similar requirements or that may be less aggressive. That might be a reason why I find a potential trap in my system. Uh, but they still use the same nesting sites. House sparrows can nest on buildings. They nest, they're actually very um, versatile to this point, but they do use nest boxes. So. I have two hypotheses concerning the reason why swallows are attracted to house sparrows. The first one is that maybe house sparrows help detect the habitats. So when swallows arrive on the breeding ground, they look for potential habitats and where they find birds, they find nest boxes. So it's just, it happens that the first habitats that they, that they encounter are the ones with house sparrows. That could explain why I find a preference. Another hypothesis is that they, they cue on the choices of house sparrows because they know that they have similar ecological requirements. As I told you, they don't share the same food. So that's kind of a bad, a bad choice. They shouldn't do that. But maybe that the species they compete for a nest, for a nest site in nature are more close to them. Um, that might be an explanation, but it's 
I, I mean, I would love to be in the head of a tree swallow and understand what's going on, but I can't. So these are the hypotheses. Which one is true? We'll never know. And that's interesting because, as you said, you'd love to be in the head of a tree swallow and be able to understand what's happening. And similarly, I was always wondering, when you're a migratory bird that goes such long distances, um, what happens? Like for, for someone like me who doesn't really study birds or migratory birds, at least, uh, I'm always wondering what was a period, what do they do when they are down south away from the Quebec in the winter? Do they um, just feed or do they uh, engage in other type of activities? Or And is there some selection that you know or think is a happening while they are away um, that makes the group different when they come back for breeding next season? These are so, so good questions. <laughs> Actually, they're, they're, it's questions that have been addressed very, very little in the liter literature because like traditionally, I think that scientists thought that the breeding grounds were most important for population dynamics, and that's that's where everything happens. So everything that happens in the winter has been left out a lot in science. So like tree swallows is one of the most studied species in North America, bird species, I mean, but we we know almost nothing of what's going on during the winter. So what we know is that the swallows that breed in Quebec, they go far, they go to uh, Florida and Cuba during the winter. We do know that they spend uh, on a mean of like 80 days on each site and that they move a little bit during the winter. We do know that they seek um, insects and that they're gonna go further south to seek insects. But we know that they also feed on berries during the winter. So why did they go that far south? That's a good question. What are they doing during that time? Well, of course they're feeding, but are they doing something else? That's a good question. And we don't really have an answer for that yet. I don't know why. I mean, I would go to Florida to study birds, but obviously that's not what people do here. So we'd like to, <laughs> <laughs> we'd like to stay in Quebec and observe Great. birds from here. Yeah, definitely. If we could study birds in Florida, that would be awesome for different reasons. Um, but yeah, yes, and all, all, it's all so difficult for 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 scientists to study to have two field sites so far away from each other in that sense. So being able to study swallows here during the reproductive season when it's most important, and being able to answer completely different questions elsewhere in the world is always difficult. Um, but that's yeah. definitely something I'll be looking into in the literature to see if there's anything that comes up at some point. Uh, what are they doing during the rest of the year while we're all freezing up here in Canada? Like, do they have a good time yeah. in the, you know, in Cuba or in Florida? So it's always a good question to ask. And it's more and more acknowledged that probably that what's going on during the winter is important for population dynamics. I think we're we're thinking about recruitment as a very important, like a vital rate for for population dynamics. So, so I, I think that a lot of it is going to come out in the next years because uh, it's it's being being acknowledged that we we should know more about that. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely like covering the the mortality aspect, right? So yeah, yeah, big part of it. Yeah, and I mean, migration is a 
it's a hard task to like to fly all the way down to Florida and to Cuba. I mean, of course, there's going to be mortality there and not ev not every bird can do the migration. You have to have gained some weight. So there's a huge selection that happens there. So I, I think it's something that's quite interesting to, to study. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I think uh, that, that brings me to another question. It's, you know, there's, there's a high, uh, a big um, application aspect to your work. What would be your take-home message to people regarding the use of uh, nest boxes? That's a good question. Well, I think that on a big scale, it's important to be careful when we use nest boxes, especially when we when we use a lot of them and when we put them in enterprise environments, environments that are very disturbed by humans. We increase the chance of creating ecological trap if we, if we um, transform the environment more. Um, on a smaller scale, I mean, I don't think it's a bad idea for you to put a nest box in your backyard, but I think it's a good idea to observe the environment before you put a nest box, like ask yourself the question, is the species that I'm attracting, is it already using the habitat? If not, why is it not using the habitat? And is it a good idea to attract it here? Same thing for actually for uh, conservation. I mean, anytime you want to do a management um, conservation effort, you have to ask the, you have to be careful of the impact it's going to have because lots of ecological traps are caused actually by conservation efforts. So yeah, just be careful and observe and monitor the nest boxes program you're, you're doing. That's a very good question and a very good answer also that I'm sure lots of people will be able to think of for any, actually, any conservation initiative they would uh, take part in. Um, Ev, honestly, uh, this, these were really interesting questions. Now we're trying to see, switch gear and maybe ask you a bit more questions about uh, your path to the master's degree and what made you decide to, to become an ecologist and, and study birds, you know? Why did you study something else? So if you want to tell us a bit more about why you decided to pursue a career in ecology and what made you interested in following with a master's degree in tree swallows. Yeah, um, so like when I was a kid, I didn't know you could become a biologist. And if I would have known, I think that's what I, I, I would have known that that I wanted to do that. <laughs> um, I, I initially wanted to become a doctor when I was in the, in CIGEP. I was, um, I, yeah, I was on a path to, uh, to medical school. And then one summer during my CIGEP, I went to British Columbia to pick cherries as Quebecers do. And I realized that I missed knowing things about nature. I lived in a tent for three months and I realized that Like we know nothing about the environment around us. Like I can't, like at this point, I couldn't even name the plants that I was seeing, the trees that I was seeing, the animal species that I was seeing. And I realized that maybe that's the most important thing is, is, is to understand our environment and to understand nature. And so that was a, a big game changer for me. I decided I want to, to understand nature and how it works. So I started my undergraduate study in biology, and then I, I actually didn't plan on doing my master's on birds because <laughs> I did a, uh, how do you say it, 
research initiation project during my undergraduate studies, and it was about bumblebees. And I was very passionate about pollinators at that point. I was, uh, I did an application with um, the, uh, the beekeeping uh, association at the university. So I was into bees and bumblebees, and I loved that. And I wanted to do my master's on bumblebees. But um, I didn't receive the grant that allowed me to do the, the research and my actual master on bumblebees. So um, I went to see the, my director about my bumblebee director. I told him, well, it doesn't work for the bumblebees. Um, I'm going to seek for a master's. And he said, well, I have money to study swallows. So I remember that day I sat as, at his office and I said, okay, what's left to know about tree swallows? I mean, it's a project that's been going on since 2004, the tree swallow project at Université de Sherbrooke. I felt like we already knew everything and I wanted my research to be important to change something. And when he told me about that idea of ecological trap, I, I was like flabbergasted that nobody had looked at that before. It seemed to me that it was such an important question and such a relevant point to, 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 to talk about the, in the literature in general, like, should we put nest boxes around and what's the impact of putting nest boxes around and what are the potential risks? So um, immediately after that, that meeting, I knew I wanted to study that. So uh, it's been uh, more than two years now. I'm depositing my thesis in a week and I'm very glad that I chose that research project because it's been an amazing trip. I, I love reading um, papers about ecological trapping. So, yeah, to me, it was a, a great choice. And Indian, I mean, I love birds. I love bees. I love mammals. I love everything. I, I mean, any, <laughs> I could have done my research on any animal. I would, I would have been really, really happy about it. That's really inspiring, honestly. Um, it's always impressive when uh, people are uh, almost done with their degree, whether it's a master's or a PhD, because most of us will be really tired with our study system, with our subject, and we'll, we will hate talking about it almost, you know, but you see like you are so passionate about it, even after two years of working intensively on it. So what what is your secret to be so passionate after two years on the same project? Do you think it's just your personality or do you think you had a different approach to, to your work that made it enjoyable for the, for the longest time possible? That's a great question. I, I think it's a part of both. I'm, I'm a very passionate person. <laughs> uh, I'm passionate about everything that I do. I do it. I do it with passion. So I think that's part of it. But I think another part of it is that, I, I love to communicate science. I mean, the, the best part for me in my master's was the presentations, the oral presentations I had to give. Like, I know it's not the case for everybody, but to me, those were the best moments because I could talk about my project. And I think I've just, I've just always loved to share my ideas because I mean, doing research, is, it's, it's always just being in your head. It's been three months that I'm alone at home with my computer thinking about the same thing and it just it feels good to talk about it and to finally be able to to have um, a conversation about the stuff that's going on in my head but yeah I'm just a very passionate person I think 
And so I guess that uh, that brings us to the next topic, which is, you know, what are your plans after the masters? What do you, uh, where do you see yourself going in biology? Um, I think I'm done with uh, academic research. I love doing my masters, but as I told you, it's a little bit too solitary for me. I think mm -hmm. um, I, I would very much like to to be able to. Um, to communicate science or to teach science as a career that would be my ultimate goal uh right now i'm starting to uh to do in infographics i'm getting into graphic design and i started to do um infographics about uh, animal and plant species that i love and to show how to identify them and fun facts about them so that's another thing that i'm pursuing um i don't know if going to be part of my career but it's, it's certainly a hobby that uh that has uh to do with uh with the ecology and with the science communication yeah i think uh, that's a really good initiative to take while you're finishing your master's um, i don't know if you had a background in uh, infographics but i do know that you uh, are someone who likes drawing and you draw very well uh, i think correct me if i'm wrong i think you've been also doing PowerPoint presentations with um, entire year drawings for, as illustrations for your slides, which is always impressive when the <laughs> students get get the time and, the, uh, and have the talent to do that, right? Yeah, that's actually how it started. Uh, I've always been, I told you I'm a passionate person and uh, I've always been kind of a, well, I think you can say I'm an artist, but I haven't ever taken any arts class, <laughs> but I've always been drawing and painting around. And it's when I first did my, my first oral presentation during my, like my first seminar, I thought it was so hard to summarize my predictions and my hypothesis with like words. And it's so boring to see a PowerPoint with words. I mean, nobody ever reads. If you're reading the PowerPoint, then you're not listening to what the person has to say. So for my second seminar and for my like conference uh, presentation, I decided I wanted to illustrate my my predictions instead of writing them down. And uh, as I told you, I talk about uh, the health sparrow, the tree swallow, the density of tree swallow, the reproductive success, the insects, so many things. And it was so hard to find like the right pictograms <laughs> to illustrate what I wanted to to say. So I just got into graphic design. I learned how to use the tools and I learned how to draw on the computer and I very much liked it. And ever since then I've been yeah, I've been drawing on the computer and now I'm trying to to put it in a more um uh to 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 do scientific communication with it. It's very fun. Everybody should try it up. It's crazy. So for people at home who are to probably into it as well or who would like to get into it just like you what platform do you recommend uh, in terms of learning how to do graphic design and also uh, doing the work itself well, which platform do you use to draw on a computer um so first thing i did was i bought um graphic uh oh, i don't know how you say it in english graphic tablet graphic pad uh you can draw on it with an actual pen so that you don't have to use like the mouse of your computer. That's like the first step. And uh, for me, I use Adobe Illustrator. It's It works very well. It's a little bit rough to learn uh, at start, but there's so many like YouTube videos. It's 
you can really learn the basic uh, from yourself at home. Um, I started by using photographs. I used a picture and I drew over it and then you just choose a color and it's very easy. That's a great way to start because like, I think it's very accessible. You don't have to have actual like drawing talent because you based on the picture. And well, once you get more comfortable, then you can stop using pictures and being more creative. But I think for, yeah, for a start, it's really, uh, it's really great to, to start with pictures. Awesome. Um, and now to go back, we're jumping uh, from one uh, topic to another now, but you said earlier, a bit earlier that you were thinking about uh, teaching science as a career or talk about the communicate science as a career. Um, do you think that a school teacher would be something you'd be interested in or you're looking for something a bit more, uh, let's say free flow would be like, a, let's say science communicator that goes to different places, different schools or different audiences or just get engaged with the public in general? Is that something that you've decided yet or that you've thought about? Yeah, I've thought about that and I haven't actually decided yet. I think uh, I I would love any opportunity that allows me to talk about science, but yeah, definitely the cool teacher part would be would be great. I'd love that. I had myself teachers that really uh, marked like yeah, had a huge impact on me and I I would love to be to be that person for someone, but yeah, I haven't actually decided yet. I um, I would love to do all of those, <laughs> everything, all of the above. <laughs> and for people at home again, and where can they find uh, your infographics work or your page if they need any, uh, if they have any project that they would like you to do for them or any work they'd like to see from you? Do you have a page that yeah. you can share with people? Or? Yeah, I do actually have a Facebook page. Um, it's called Eve Courtois, which is my name, illustrations. And, um, I'm currently working on like plants and animals that I myself enjoy to watch and I'm doing infographics about them. But I also do pets. Like I've drawn my cats. Uh, I've done an infographics because they look alike a little bit. So I've done an infographic to help differentiate them. And that's been very useful <laughs> uh, for my uh, visitors that come to my house they, so they can know which one is which. And I've done that for a friend too, actually. So that's that's another thing that I like to do, draw pets. <laughs> so yeah, you can find me on Facebook and I like to, to take uh, special uh, commands. Sweet. And uh, talk to your cats. Um, I, I figure like when you have two cats and you need to find ways to differentiate them, uh, when it's not visually, you can also have it different, have them differentiated behaviorally, right? With their behavior. So do you have any behavior uh, syndromes that you observe in your two cats that's something you could tell us a bit more about from a biological point of view oh yeah of course so what's very interesting about cats is that i i, I was listening to a podcast the other day and the the scientist was a uh, working on cats and she said that it's not actually we don't actually know for sure that they're domesticated they're a bit more well, not a bit. They're way more savage than uh, than dogs are. So to me, I feel like living with cats is like living with uh, little wild animals that that are um, used to humans. Let's say. So my cats, they're um, a mother and 
and her son and they look very much alike, but they have very different behavior because like the mother, the mother, she lived in the streets. She lived in nature. That's where she was found. And her baby, well, we had him. He was one month old. So he's very much um, of an indoor cat. Like he doesn't have any, well, he wouldn't survive in nature. That's what I mean. <laughs> Whereas his mom, she would. So they have very different behavior in that sense. Like her mom is very much more wildcat. She is more frightened. She's um, more difficult to approach for new visitors. Whereas like her son, he's, you can, anybody could take him. He's very gentle and very used to humans, much more than his mother. So we have a, a question that we, we tend to ask, or we want to ask all of our uh, all of our guests that come on, and uh, that's you know how do you engage in scientific or philosophical conversations, and uh, what does ecology everywhere mean to you? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I I like to think of science as more. Well, I like to to talk about science in general in my life, not with only my scientific colleagues. I mean, science is about observing your environment and asking questions and trying to insert them. So that's just a philosophy that you can apply in your everyday life and that you can apply to almost everything. So I'm I'm a bit of that kind of person that asks questions all the time and try to insert them. And so to me, the Ecology Everywhere podcast is a great way to to not only share interest and knowledge, but to ask questions, further questions. What, what else do we don't, what else is there to know? What else should be, should we look into? And, and in, in, in a topic, that's definitely the most interesting. I mean, ecology is everywhere, right? Like everyone has a link. Everyone can understand ecology. Everyone has some link to nature. So, I, I mean, anyone could be, can be touched in their personal life by ecological questions, ecological knowledge. So to me, it's very important to share that. Great, yeah, for sure. Uh, so uh, I think we're just about wrapping it up. Uh, Want to ask, uh, do you have any messages for our audience? Uh, like any any other things you want to mention uh, before we finish? Well. Look around you, pay attention to your environment, pay attention to the birds, they're everywhere, they're in the city, they're in nature. If you want to attract them to your backyard, that's all right, just pay attention to what your background looks, what animals are using your background before and after you put nest boxes, that's great. Um, have fun, like, <laughs> Learn to know your environment. Learn, learn to name the birds you see. Learn to name the the plants that you see, and that's where the fun begins. Awesome. I think that's a really good advice to give, uh, especially in this time of uh, social isolation and confinement, where oh, yeah. most of us don't have all that much to do besides working from home, or or at least you know. We can't go to the movies. We can't uh, actually go and have, grab a beer at the bar. Like everything's closed. So I think it's a good time, as you're saying, to get outside and appreciate nature. That's probably the only thing that is still working uh, in this period oh, yeah. of confinement. So 
And so I, I mean, bird watching is very easy. Even if you're in downtown Montreal, I mean, there are birds everywhere. And if you don't find any like interesting species of bird, you can still like look at their behavior. What are they eating? How are they interacting with each other? That's, those are all very interesting observations that you can do anywhere you are. So yeah, pay attention to that and be like, be curious about what's going on. That's amazing. Thank you very much, Ev. That was a really, really good conversation. Really enjoyed it. And uh, I can't wait to share it with our audience. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. That was it for this week's episode of Ecology Everywhere podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us or with one of our interviewees, contact us at ecologypodcast at gmail.com. And if you or a friend of yours sees Ecology Everywhere, Get in touch with us to feature in our next episode.